In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. I do my best to try and be a good citizen. I'm sure that most of you do, too. And there are certain things that we do because we've been told that it makes a difference. I do them because if we all do them, we can create a better world. So I don't litter. I obey the rules of the road. And I recycle. I recycle a lot. See, I grew up in the 1990s when reduce, reuse, recycle branding was at its peak. Those little blue arrows forming a circle were everywhere in my school. There were public service announcements on TV when I got home the whole bit. It was drilled into me. So now, 20, 30 years later, I toss everything in the blue box, especially plastic. If it's got those arrows on it anywhere, and it goes. And you probably know by now where this is going. The past few years have seen shipments of our recycled plastics returned to Canada's shores. Countries overseas have simply stopped taking it. See, it turns out that most of the plastic that we tossed in the recycling box never got recycled. Almost none of it did. That's bad enough, of course, that the effort we all thought we were making to help the planet wasn't working. It's not great. But that's not the worst of it. All of that effort was never going to help the planet. And according to a new investigation, the people behind that gigantic PR push, the reduce, reuse, recycle, the TV PSAs, all of that, they knew it wouldn't help, but they told us to recycle anyway. Why do you think they did that? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Laura Sullivan is an NPR News investigative correspondent who led a massive investigation. Hey, Laura. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Can you start um, by kind of giving us the scope of this project and maybe just where did it begin? What was the germ behind it? So it's really interesting. It, it was a couple of years ago when China shut its doors and everybody started talking about how recycling wasn't working and, and where was all this plastic going? And it turned out that most of it was getting landfilled. And it started raising this kind of question of like, why is it suddenly broken now? You know, I, I, I like most people, sort of grew up believing in recycling. I mean, this is, you know, more, you know, kindergartners recycling adults recycle more people recycle than vote. I mean, it's just, you know, we were sort of raised on this sort of idea of, you know, good people recycle. And so you do this thing your whole life. And I couldn't figure out why it was suddenly broken. Okay, fine. China was shutting its doors, but this stuff was valuable, right? I mean, we were always told, like, don't throw it out. It has such value. Everybody wants it. There's so much you can do. And it wasn't just that we were talking about 
you know, specifically, you know, about metals or paper. What everybody was talking about was plastic. Mm -hmm. And I had really thought that, you know, I was very much an aspirational recycler through all kinds of stuff in the bin, thinking that somebody was doing something with it and that it had, you know, this kind of value. When we got out onto the road, we realized that it did not have any value. And then, in fact, uh, the vast majority of plastic not only is being um, landfilled or burned, um, but it always has been. And in all of these years and 30 years of recycling, less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. And so what I couldn't figure out is if it's always been that way, if it's always been sort of a failed kind of process, because at 9, 10%, you really, you really haven't made it a big dent in this plastic trash problem. Yeah. Why did we all think that it worked? You know, why did we all think that plastic recycling worked when, when it doesn't? That really just started this journey of trying to understand why did we all think that this worked when it didn't? And who was behind that? And that's what led us to the oil industry. Well, why don't you tell me the story um, of the origin of the recycling programs? Like, where did they come from originally? So we decided to go back. And if you're going to go try to figure out where recycling came from, where recycling plastic came from, you got to start with the plastics industry. Now, plastic's made from oil, but really it's, you know, it's made from the DuPont Chemical Company and Chevron and, and Exxon and and uh, Procter & Gamble and companies like that. So we decided to go back and look at some of their records. And that led us to a series of archives. But we started looking through their records saying, what did they know about the recyclability? of their product. Um, you know, plastic was this chemical marvel that took on the world. I mean, it was like this, this thing that looked like glass, but it didn't break. It could keep food, you know, safe and edible for days. It was this incredible, it was like magic had hit the world. And it, and, and it changed the world in the way that we even interact with all the stuff in the world. And so surely we thought they must know whether or not plastic is recyclable. And so we started looking through all these records. And what I was shocked to find is that as far back as the 1970s, the oil and gas industry, the plastic industry knew that there were all of these problems trying to recycle plastic. And that in, in some of these documents were stark. I mean, they basically said, this can't, this can't be done. One speech to, uh, from an industry insider said, you know, it is unlikely that you know, the vast majority of plastic will ever be you know, recycled on any sort of economic scale. Another one called recycling costly, sorting the plastic infeasible. Um, and then a lot of these reports that went to top executives of the oil and gas companies at that time said, look, plastic degrades every time you try to recycle it. So maybe you can do it once if it's, you know, a really old fashioned plastic, like a soda bottle or milk jug, but you're not going to be able to do it again. So at best, you're really, even if you do take all your soda bottles and make them into Patagonia jackets or make them into other soda, you know, a new soda bottles with other plastic, you know, put into that, you're still, it's just a momentary stop on the way to the landfill. If they knew all that way, way back then, why did these programs move forward? What What's the benefit? So that was the second big question is how, it, they knew this to be true. They knew that this pla that pl the, recycling the vast majority of plastic was a pipe dream. 
And so why have we all spent all of these years trying to recycle plastic? And that led us to trying to track down all of the the folks that were in the documents. There were all of these people, um, men at that time, they were all men, that ran, you know, sort of at the top level of the plastic uh, industry. And and I went and tracked down some of the, the folks that were there and um, ended up interviewing three of them on the record um, who were sort of the top officials in the plastic industry in the 80s and 90s. And what they said was that back at that time, they had a problem. People were really turning against plastic. You know, this is the late 80s and there's just so much plastic trash. On the one hand, it's this incredible material. On the other hand, people are tired of it littering all this stuff, filling their trash cans. They don't know what to do with all this single-use plastic. And they're starting to say this is too much. And people are saying, I, we got to ban plastic. We got to cut back on its use. And they were under fire. And there are records in these files that show, you know, the, the, the top lobbyists for the plastics industry saying, you know, we need to act now. We're at a point of no return. Um, it says, you know, uh, hmm. this, this guy, his name was Larry Thomas. He wrote to the top officials at Exxon and Amoco and Dow and DuPont and Procter and & Gamble. And he said, uh, the, the image of plastics is deteriorating at an alarming rate. And he calls all of them to these sort of meetings in Washington at fancy hotels. And he brings them all together and they have to figure out what they're going to do. Now, they all know Larry Thomas and a couple of the others that were in these meetings that were there at the time told me that they knew that, you know, the obvious answer is, okay, we'll just recycle all of it. Everybody will love it. But they knew that wasn't going to work because they had all those reports. They had all this information and they knew it was never going to work on a vast scale. So what they decided to do instead was advertise their way out of it. And if you remember back into the 1990s, there were these iconic commercials that people grew up with, you know, about the benefits of plastic and this incredible material plastic. And then at the same time, this incredible push to recycle it. And they would have nonprofits and school recycling contests, and they would have all these expensive sorting machines that the industry paid for that didn't make any economic sense. It was like a million-dollar machine that, you know, would you know, run through plastic and sort it all out and they would make, you know, a thousand bucks, you know, off this stuff. And um, and it ended up, you know, sort of figuring out that what they did at that time was sell the public on the idea of recycling plastic so that they could keep selling plastic. And that for me was one of the most stunning things about this investigation and this podcast that we did on Planet Money was that, you know, they knew all along that it wasn't going to work, but they told the American public to do it anyway. So you're saying that all those PSAs I grew up with, and and at my school, we had uh, those little recycling signs uh, as stickers that you could stick on your binders or wherever. Like it was, it was a thing. It was the early 90s. Um, that was all, first of all, a lie, but second of all, paid for by oil companies. A significant portion of it was paid for by the oil companies, including the plastic benches outside of grocery stores that are made out of quote unquote plastic bags, which don't make any economic sense. I mean, if you're going to buy a bench, you're not going to spend however many times more for the plastic recycled bench than you would just for the new bench. So, but but they have a big sign on it which makes you believe that somewhere in the world everybody's taking plastic bags and making benches out of them. You know, and that this is a good, you know, that it's just dependent yeah. on the consumer to believe that they want this recycled material and pay more for it. Um, 
those, you know, the the men at that time that I talked to said that there was a there was a feeling that they wanted it to work. They hoped it was going to work. You know, they would go out and you know, try to set up all these recycling programs, hoping that maybe this would sort of magically work itself out. And maybe if they could get recycling started, that it would take off somehow and the economics would just poof, you know, mm. suddenly mm. work, but it never did. And um, two two of the men said there was never an enthusiastic belief that recycling was going to work in a significant way. That's what he told me. And and they were, you know, they. I think a lot of them, these are the lobbyists for the oil industry. They were paid to sort of help the oil industry out of this crisis. And I think they feel, you know, sort of conflicted about this time at this point and, and you know, feeling like, they helped the industry out of this crisis in the 90s, and then everybody put it aside for about 20 years while, you know, China came in, swept in, picked up all the plastic trash, and it turns out they were just sorting through it for the milk jugs and the soda bottles to the good bits, and they were either burning or 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 burying or possibly dumping the rest of the plastic trash, too. So it didn't really get, you know, the, the, the curtain didn't get unpeeled until... A couple of years ago when China said, actually, we can't make this work environmentally and we can't make it work economically. So we don't want this trash either. Tell us a little bit about that, just for people that that may not have paid attention to that at the time. What happened a couple of years ago? So China, I mean, China had been taking all of this plastic trash from the United States. The ships come over full of stuff, we buy it, and then they go back empty. So it was really easy to put all this plastic trash almost for free onto these ships and send them over to China, where they had very um, inexpensive labor and lots of labor who could pick through all of the plastic and sort it out and, you know, break it down into like, here are the soda bottles and and here's the milk jugs and here's the good stuff and here and here's all the stuff with the plastic we can't do anything with. And then they would melt those down because the thing about plastic is you can't, anybody can go into a, anybody can take anything and put a piece of plastic in their microwave, melt it down and reform it into something else. But the thing is that you can't mix plastics together. You can't take a soda bottle and melt it down with a strawberry container. It's, it makes a, it's a chemical mess and you can't do anything with that. So you have to separate all the strawberry containers. You have to separate all the soda bottles. You have to separate. And there's hundreds of different kinds of plastic. So someone's got to sit through there and, you know, sort it out. That's expensive. It's time consuming. It's a problem. And new oil is so cheap. It's so cheap to make plastic out of brand new virgin oil that why, you know, you get to the point where it's why bother? Why bother use, making plastic out of plastic trash when you can just make it cheaper and easier and cleaner out of the new oil that's being pumped out of the ground? And so this is just a market force that has existed for three decades that has, it's a, it's a foundational problem to recycling plastic that has never been resolved. And these men in the 90s were saying they were going to try to do it and they were going to try to get it into people's homes and maybe they can get the curbs going. But at the same time, they couldn't get it to work. And I interviewed one man, Ron Lee who, you know, whose job was to get recycling going into people's homes in their neighborhoods. And he set out with with high hopes that he could get recycling plastic off the ground. Now, he also says they did it because they were facing so many bans in local neighborhoods like Minnesota and New York. And so they ran out there and they set up these recycling programs and they said, no, no, you don't need to ban this stuff. Look, just recycle it. And then the public was happy and the bans went away. The problem is, 
that all of that plastic never ended up really getting recycled. You know, less than 10% of it has ever been recycled. Um, and usually just only once or twice before it has to end up in the landfill. So even he said, you know, that he hoped it would work, but that it even, you know, but they just couldn't get it done. And I went and looked at a, a dozen of their really high profile programs, the, the kind that you're talking about from the 90s, from growing up, you know, all of this recycling fever that environmentalists got on board with, with good yeah. intentions saying, great, yes, let's recycle. Let's get everybody recycling this stuff. We don't have to use so much of it. And they got on board with it and and it just took off. And And so much of that funding, though, came from the oil and gas industry. And I went and looked at like 12 of their most significant projects. They were going to recycle all the plastic in national parks and they were going to recycle all the plastic in school lunches in New York and all of these big things that came out with big fanfare. They, all of them shuttered or failed within five or six years in the nineties and quietly, you know, went away. My name is John Cullen and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. At what point, and this is kind of a a delicate question, I guess, is there a line between, you know, not knowing and hoping it would work out and doing it with the best of intentions and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, lying to the public to preserve your business interests, because I realize that this might be more on one side than the other, but like the similarities to the tobacco companies are not that far away here. There's a, it's interesting you say that because some, some of this, did remind me a little bit of that as well. And I think that for for the lobbyists, you know, I think like Larry Thomas will say, you know, look, I'm, I, I was he said I was the higher gun. Mm-hmm. You know, I was called in. I was higher. I was the higher gun. This was not my plan. I was just there to implement. And he said I did not always agree with the thoughts and ideas of the industry I was hired to represent. But um but that was the job, and I was paid to do it. And he tried to keep the plastics industry sort of out from under the fire. But I think that that from you know from the folks that I talked to, there was a recognition that recycling the vast majority of plastic wasn't working, that they didn't have any sort of ability to do that, um, but that they hoped that the benefits of plastic would outweigh the trash problem and would outweigh the environmental concerns. And and Larry Thomas said that it was easy because the public loved plastic by the 90s. Yeah. And they be they fell in love with the cheap easy nature of this plastic. It's all over our lives. And he said he said I don't know if it was that they thought that everything was getting recycled or if that they loved plastic so much that they were no longer concerned with the environmental problems that were mounting up. And so I think that these were, you know, these were guys that were sort of on the periphery of a plan, you know, that they didn't create, but that they now look back on and, and, and don't agree with. 
Did you put this question uh, and, and your findings to industry executives who are still uh, in the industry today? Yeah. So we we took all of this to, we went down, uh, I went down and talked to the vice president of sustainability for Chevron Phillips. He was this very earnest man. He was really wants to solve this issue. And so I asked him, well, how, okay, so what are we going to do? What's the plan? You know, what is the plan to deal with the plastic trash problem now? We know it hasn't worked for 30 years, this recycling thing. So what are we doing? And he said that Chevron Phillips plan is to recycle 100% of all of the plastic that they make by 2040, 100%. And he says this, you know, without without flinching, without, he really means this when he was saying it. That's how I felt interviewing him. Um, but I asked him, how are you going to get there? How are you going to get to 100%? You've never gotten past nine in 30 hmm. years. How yeah. do you get to 100? And he said, well, we're going to really focus on better education, better sorting, better machines, technology, you know, and maybe even some regulation. And it just, it, you know, that's that's the same plan that's been underway for 30 years. So I and I went and talked to the head of of the lobbying group now at the time, um, the vice president for plastic for the American Chemistry Council and um, Steve Russell. And he said and I said, look, is this everybody's plan? Is this is this what we're doing? We're, we're recycling 100 percent. He said, yes, that is the plan. We're going to recycle 100 percent of the plastic we make. And he also said it's going to be different this time. We really mean it this time. You know, but it's like this, at the same time that they're saying this with, and they're putting hundreds of millions of dollars, they say, behind this. And I and that is true. They are um, new programs to pick up trash and recycle trash. And, you know, they're even putting out new ads to get people to recycle hmm. the trash. But the problem with this is that there's more plastic trash now than there's ever been. They are making more of it than they ever have. Plastic production is expected to triple by 2050. Plastic is harder to recycle now than it's ever been because it's more chemically complex. You've got squeeze packets that have three layers in it, toothpaste tubes that have two layers in it. Sometimes your Tide bottle even, which was the gold standard of recycling, are now have like a lot of them have multi layers inside them and so you can't really recycle them anymore. Um, it's harder to recycle plastic now than it's ever been. But they all still have the symbol on it. Yeah. So to segue into that, I'll just tell you the the but the one thing that got me most of all about this idea that they that the industry's plan is to recycle 100% of the plastic they make is that if you recycle 100% of the plastic you make, why would anybody need to buy your oil and gas? So it's hard to believe an industry that says it wants to put itself out of business in such a way. Um, or make such a significantly less amount of money than they could if they just sold fresh gas and oil. So they said, check back. We promise we really mean it this time. Um, but back to those numbers. So yeah, on the bottom of these containers, one of the most interesting things I found in all of these documents that we sort of go through in the in the podcast is that that all of these numbers at the same time that these ads are on the air and this big initiative to get people to love plastic and recycle plastic is going on. They're also, the plastic industry is also quietly lobbying 40s, almost 40 states to mandate that this plat, that this symbol, the international recycling symbol 
be put on every single piece of plastic. And they were successful. They got it into all these different states until every single one had to follow the follow it. And at this point, you know, a number of recyclers started freaking out. We talked to one in, in San Diego, this guy named Coy Smith. He was one of the original recyclers out, out in San Diego. And he said, I was out there one day and everything was going fine. I didn't really want to recycle plastic because I couldn't make any money off of it. But I said, okay, look, give me your soda bottles and milk jugs because the customers, there are wash and plastic ads. They want to recycle plastic. So he says, look, you can give me your soda bottles and milk jugs. That's it. I'm going to lose money on them, but I'll take them because it makes you happy. And I'll, you know, I'll make up for it with the metals and the paper. So he does that. But then he goes out one day and all of a sudden his bins are full of trash, plastic trash. And he doesn't want yogurt containers and toothpaste tubes and all this stuff. And he's like, what is happening? Why is everybody putting all this stuff in? I told you soda bottles and milk jugs. And they get out. And so he gets out there and he's looking through all the trash. He's flipping it all over. And he sees the international recycling symbol on the bottom of all this plastic. And he said he knew immediately what happened, that everybody was confused, that everybody said, oh, well, the yogurt has it and so does the milk jug, so I'll just throw them both in. Looks great. Glad they can recycle it all now. And he called all of his fellow recycling friends all over the country, and they all said, yes, we're having the same problem. We don't know what's going on. They figured out that it was the plastic industry and the lobbying groups that had done this and had put this symbol on all the plastic. And they went, and for years, this went on for years, they argued with them, they met with them, they had a big, you know, meeting groups, and they said, please, anything but the recycling symbol. Could you just, because... Could you just put a number, you know, and, and, the, and the plastic industry told them and also told me that the symbol was only ever meant to help sort plastic. It was to help the recyclers sort out this from that and, you know, and things like that. But they said, fine, you can help us, quote unquote, sort the plastic. That's fine. Put numbers on it, put whatever you want on it, but don't put it in the international recycling symbol. Could you put it in a square? Could you just not, could you just put the number on it and not have a symbol of any kind? And the industry said, no. And they fought for years and they lost. And for 30 years, we've all been looking at the international recycling symbol on the bottom of all plastic, even though it does not mean that the plastic can be economically recycled. Well, this is where um, I kind of wanted to end up because I still throw all my plastic in the recycling. I don't know what else to do with it. It feels wrong to throw it in the garbage. Um, Even... Even though I know, you know, I was paying attention two years ago when China stopped accepting it. I know it's probably not getting recycled, but there's no other good option. I got to tell you, I after this story, I when I'm standing in the grocery car store and I'm looking into my cart, I feel nothing but defeat. I don't know what to do either. What I will tell you, and this is just me, but I know that soda bottles and milk jugs have a market in this country and that they will be turned into at least once something else. Um, but the rest of it I throw in the trash because I spent a lot of time in Indonesia and I saw where our quote unquote recycling was ending up and it was ending up in people's neighborhoods and in the ocean. And it is so heartbreaking to, to walk through these neighborhoods and see what looks like an American grocery store or, in, you know, Australian stuff was all over the neighborhoods, too, in these dumping grounds in people's neighborhoods. And after that, I just thought until until I can know for sure that this is actually going to be turned into something else, 
I just put it in the trash. And that's when we went out to Rogue Recycling and Disposal in Oregon. You know, she said she's the woman who, Lord Liebrick, who ran the, who runs the facility, one of the managers of the facility out there said, you know, that when she realized that she couldn't find anybody to take anything but the soda bottles and milk jugs, that she felt like she had been lying to people. She felt like she had been lying to the customers unwittingly, but she just felt like the customers were counting on her to do something with the yogurt containers and she couldn't do anything with them. So she buries them. They're landfilled. All other plastic is landfilled. And she said that at least when it's landfilled, you know it's not ending up in a developing country where they're even less equipped to deal with it than we are. So my last question then is, is what happens next? Um, and and is there a potential path forward? Let's put aside for the moment, though uh, I'm sure we're both hopeful, the idea of 100% of plastics being recycled by 2040, that would be great. Um, assuming that doesn't come to pass, um, w- what needs to change? The messaging? Um, do we need to start talking about banning plastic again? Like, uh, is that the only way forward? One thing that struck me is that In the beginning of the environmental movement, it was reduce, reuse, and if all else fails, try to recycle it. And that message got co-opted in large part because of the oil and gas industry and the money that they threw behind the final R, the recycle. If there is an awareness that recycling plastic is not working, maybe the shift, maybe the attention will shift back to where it was originally, reduce and reuse, and pull it away from this idea that there's an easy solution where you can use as much plastic as you want and it doesn't have an environmental impact because it'll get recycled. The biggest difference right now from the 1990s to right now, this period now, is whether or not the public still believes the oil industry when it says it will recycle all the plastic that you buy, so go buy some more. And if the public no longer believes that, and when you are standing in the grocery store and you are looking at your takeout container and you are looking at your bags and you think, I just used this for 30 seconds and now I'm going to throw it out, at least you know now that that's what's happening to it. And I think in some way, I think that will change the way the consumer looks at plastic. I hope so. It uh, certainly started to change my mind. Thank you so much for this today, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Laura Sullivan, investigative correspondent for NPR News. That was The Big Story. For more big stories, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Look us up on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Drop us a line via email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Head to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. I usually say I don't care which, but we are so close to 1,000 reviews on Apple, and I would like to get there. So use that one. Claire Broussard is the lead producer of The Big Story. Ryan Clark and Stephanie Phillips are our associate producers. Annalisa Nielsen is our digital editor, and I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a safe weekend. We'll talk Monday. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. 
That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.